turn to Colossians. We are ramping up into our study of Colossians, and we're looking at some postures, some uh, postures that we sometimes assume before God that falls short of that unrivaled nature that Christ is to have in our lives. As, as we've seen, the, the goal, the theme of this Colossians study is we're calling unrivaled, that Christ would have a, an unrivaled place in our lives, not only for our spiritual help, but also for the, for the watching world around us. And today, we, 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 we're going to look at life over God, what we're going to call life over God and a life under God posture. And we've seen over the last few weeks, we've looked at a life for God posture. We looked at a life from God posture. And again, the issue here, the issue in all of these is preeminence. The issue is Christ being unrivaled in our lives and before a watching world. And, and that's the main issue. Again, that is the main issue we're dealing with here. Preeminence. What, what is foremost? What is preeminent in our lives? Why are we doing? We saw last week the why behind the what. We get so consumed about the what, but what is the why behind the what? And, and the issue is in our lives, if we are not careful, Christ can subtly be relegated to a prominent place in our lives but not a preeminent place in our lives. And that He is replaced by something. On the throne of our lives, He is replaced, subtly or not so subtly. And many times, many times, what, what He's replaced with is really self. A, a need to control. A need to, to, to put this world that's so out of control to us in a position where we can control. And, and even the thought that we think that we can control God, to put Him in a place where He has to do our bidding. Like, God, I did this, therefore you have to do that. I did my part, now you have to do your part. And, and that is the issue that we're going to look at in Colossians. One, uh, Colossians. If you'll look at verses 13 through 18... We're going we're gonna to start, begin, Tony is going to begin our study next week of Colossians 1, going verse by verse, but, but this is the, the key, the issue in Colossians, begins in verse 13 of chapter 1, for He, Christ, has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. God has done that through Christ, in whom we have the redemption, forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that, here it is, so that He himself will come to have first place in everything. The, the goal of the gospel, the goal of our lives, is that Christ would have first place in everything, that He would be preeminent. And even in our gospel and how we respond to the gospel, nothing above, nothing else, nothing else to gain, nothing else to get. It, it's all about Christ. Listen, we, we do not follow Jesus for what we can get outside of God, outside of being reconciled to a holy God. 
not wealth, not health, not security in this world and from the things of this world. We get Jesus. We saw that a couple weeks ago in 1 Peter 3.18. The goal is to bring us to God. He says, For Christ died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. The, the issue is how, how do sinners, separated from a holy God, how are they rightly reconciled to God? The answer is the gospel. And, and what we get in the gospel is reconciliation to a holy God, that though we are enemies, we are, we are reconciled to a holy God. That, that's, we've, we've said it many times. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. In the gospel, we exchange sinfulness for righteousness. Therefore, God can forgive you and I rightly of our sin. The goal of the gospel is reconciliation to God. He is the reward. It's not, the gospel is not follow Jesus and everything goes right, but it's follow Jesus and he is enough when it doesn't go right. He's enough. That's, that's the message of the gospel. The message declared through our lives is not come to Jesus and get everything you've ever wanted. It's come to Jesus and no matter what, nothing can separate you from a holy God. That's the gospel. That, no, that where sin abounded, listen to me, Romans 5.20, grace much more abounded. It's Hebrews 13.5 and 6, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. That's the gospel. Christ is enough. And, and that is to be the theme that is declared and proclaimed in all of our lives before a watching world. That Christ is enough, not the stuff. It's that Christ is enough. He's the prize. It's reconciliation. And, and in, all of these, in all of these false postures that we've looked at and, and the two that we'll look today, the issue is at hand is that something else becomes preeminent in our lives. We do what we do not for the glory of God, but for ourselves, for something in this world, for ourselves. Christ ceases to be preeminent and is exchanged for something that He can give us. For something that we can get from Him. And that something displaces Christ at the center of our lives. And listen to me, when that happens, that's not Christianity. That's something entirely different. Christianity declares this, that Jesus is enough. It's not Jesus plus anything. It's not Jesus minus anything. It's, G, it's Christ, the gospel. We, we looked at that when we looked at, at Galatians. The, the declaration before a watching world of our lives is to be that no matter what, Jesus Christ is enough. He's totally sufficient. For my grace is sufficient. Period. He is enough. He's preeminent. Nothing else to want. 
not, nothing else to pursue. Christ is enough. And in the life for God, the life from God, we were, we were doing things, but they were for the different reason. It was not that Christ was enough. The reality is, is in both of those, and even when we look out today, what we're declaring before a watching world is that Christ is not enough when we assume those postures. And that's the danger. We misrepresent Christianity. And so today I want us to, as we're, as we're moving into Colossians, I want to look at two postures. And the first is this, it's a life under God posture. Life under God posture. And in this posture, we begin to live in a way and we begin to do everything we do to simply avoid calamity. We do what we do to keep bad things from happening. If we're honest, all of us, are. it's very easy for us to fall into that mindset. We see this mindset in John 9, when the man is born blind. What did they say? Who, who sinned that this man would be born blind? Did he sin or did his parents sin? Even in Philippians, in, in verse 12, again, Paul is very, he's clearing up. He's sitting in prison. People were assuming things about his ministry and about his relationship to God. And Paul, the very first thing he says is, Brethren, I don't want you to be unaware about my circumstances. Calamity does not, we don't, we don't worship God to avoid calamity. The, the reality is in this small little room right here, there, there, is, there are lives that are filled with calamity. And, and if we're, and we're worshiping just to avoid calamity, listen, we're, Paul would say this, then we're wasting our time. We need to go eat, drink, and be merry. Because listen, calamity is, this room is full of calamity. Why, why are we doing what we're doing? And, and rea the reality is, we, this, this life under God posture, it, it, see, it, it displays before a watching world a God that is moody, a, a God that is unaccountable, a God that's given swings and moods. And listen, we've got to appease Him so He won't be unhappy with us. That's the picture we end up placing. So I want, I want to break this down real quickly so that we can diagnose this in our own lives and that we can repent and move out of this because the world is watching. And the first thing, the first thing you see there, A, on your handout, the life under God posture views our obedience as a way of appeasing God. Again, you, you live how you live just to, just to keep a moody God happy because you don't know what He'll do otherwise that he's got to be appeased, that you've got to merit his goodwill, that, that he's not good in and of himself. His goodness has to be earned and it has to be maintained through your behavior. It, it, it's kind of like that. Some of us may know that person in our lives that just may fly off the handle at the drop of a hat or you never know what they're going to be like and so you kind of walk around on eggshells around that person. That, that's not Christianity. We, we know what God is like. I'm not saying we've got him figured out. But that's an inaccurate picture. And, and our motivation for sacrifice, for all that we do, our motivation is not a response to God's greatness. It's not a response to sacrificial mercy. It's not a response to all the grace and the love that's given in the gospel. Instead, God's goodness has to be bought. It's got to be maintained through our behavior. And that's, 
again, our lives, think about the picture that that would paint before watching world. How would that motivate or whet anyone's appetite in your life to be drawn to that God? There's nothing salty about that, as he says in Matthew 5. The, the reality is, is that would be a stench. That would be a fragrant aroma, as he talks about in Corinthians. And again, we, 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 we act, we begin to act not out of joy, but we, be act, we begin to act out of fear. 1 John says, perfect love casts out all fear. And, and, and that becomes the problem. Unfortunately, some of us may be relating to God that way because we simply don't know Him well enough. We don't really grasp His goodness and His character and, and the constant character. You see in James 1, there is no, in whom there is no variation or shifting of shadow, he says in James 1, 17 through 19. God's character is, the, the seminary word to be, it's immutable, it's unchanging, His character. We don't need to walk around on eggshells just trying to appease Him because we don't know what will happen otherwise. But also in the life under God posture, God's goodness must be sustained through our rituals and sacrifices. Religion and our, and our obedience becomes a way to sustain the universe, namely a universe that revolves around us. And, and we begin to do certain things. We have to do this or else, if, if I don't go to church today, I don't know what will happen. If I don't do this, I don't know what God's going to do. If I don't, that's, the, that's the posture we take. If I don't do certain things, there's no way God's going God's to bless me. If I don't follow the rules. And listen, that, that was the mindset. That was the mindset in Job's friends. Calamity comes upon Job, and what was the assumption of Job's friends? What'd you do? What'd you do, Job? Just be honest. What'd you do? 30-some chapters, they quizzed Job on what did you do that this calamity would fall upon you. That was the basis of all of their actions. What did you do to bring this upon yourself? And, and in that mindset, you're less blessed because God was less satisfied with your life. And so God blesses your neighbor and not you because your neighbor's sacrifice was better. And when calamity comes, it, it, what'd you do? What'd you do this time? And, and again, the root is control. We're trying to control that was a, which is uncontrollable. uncontrollable. I mean, 2 Timothy 3.12 dispels this. Those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Bottom line. All calamity does not mean that you've sinned. That was the case in, that wasn't the case in Job's life. What did he do? I'm not saying Job was perfect. I'm saying if you study the book, it was not traced to a behavior or a lack of behavior in Job's life. And, and listen, we're not in control. And sometimes God will allow or even bring things into our lives to, to, to really sometimes to show us what's in our own hearts, because we don't know what was in our heart. That's Deuteronomy 8. He did this to show them what was in their heart. Sometimes it's so that you can comfort others. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, comfort others with the comfort you've been comforted with. Sometimes God walks you through something so that you can walk somebody else through something. 
Sometimes, as in the case of Paul, God is using your circumstances to get the gospel to another place that it would not have gotten otherwise. That was what Paul said. The gospel is, is going forth. It, 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 the life under, again, the life under God mentality, Christ is not preeminent. In the past, it looked in pagans and uh, pagan rituals and, and, and pagan sacrifices, it was making offering and sacrifices to the sun god, to the rain god, so that their crops would do well. And the challenge for us is even in our lives as Christians, we, we can fall in the trap, and you see it on your handout, of combining rituals and morality. Combining. That, that's really what we'll see in Colossians. They lived in an environment where, where religion had become really syncretic, meaning that they had combined a lot of ingredients from a lot of different religions, if you will, or ways of lives. And they were just like, well, I'll take the best here, the best here, the best here, the best here, and I'll bring them all together and I'll kind of concoct something on my own. Christ is not preeminent. And we, we're not, su- listen, we don't live by superstition. We live on, based on the character of God. Besides, it's bad luck to be superstitious. That's extra. We don't live based on superstition. We base our lives on the unshakable, immovable, unchangeable character of a holy, good, just, merciful, sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God. And so, again, it's not sustained. Even here in Colossians, He holds all things together. Through His power. Not through my power. Not through my ability to, or inability. He holds all in Him all things were created. Both in the heavens and on the earth. Visible and invisible. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things and He holds all things together. He holds all things together. We have to trust Him. Because He's preeminent. And the more that we know Him, again, even in Romans 15, 4, it says, we have been given the Scriptures so that we might have hope. What's that hope? We look through thousands of years of history of a God who was faithful, even in spite of His people's unfaithfulness. He was faithful. Now, I'm not saying go off and be unfaithful. I'm saying that we learned, that, listen, even in the midst of Israel's tremendous unfaithfulness, God was faithful to His promises. Even in our own lives, 2 Corinthians 1.20, for as many as are the promises of God, guess what? In Christ Jesus, they were yes. Yes. He's a promise keeper. And, and Christ, He holds all things together. See, in the life under God posture, we obey strictly because we're seeking to control God, not glorify Him. We, we use... If we're not careful, we can go to moral codes and rituals and all these things to get God to do what we want Him to do. And, and again, we saw this. We, we will see this in detail in Colossians 2. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or, or, or drink or respect to a festival or new moon or Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of prize. By delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions, not holding fast to the head 
from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with the growth. Look, we grow through staying in Christ. Even Go down to verse 23. Again, he says these are all to pass away. He says, these matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly endurance. I mean, indulgence. They look wise on the outside. The problem is they offer no power. They, they look wise. They look religious from the outside, but they don't, deal, they don't deal with our sin nature. Again, Romans 8, 12, Galatians 5, 16. Walk by the Spirit and you will not obey the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5, 16. Walk by the Spirit and you will um, put to death the deeds of the flesh. It's walking by the Spirit. My, my flesh won't crucify my flesh. My flesh will indulge my flesh. The Spirit will put to death my flesh. Even, even in, again, God, I'm not saying that we're not a people who are not under rules. We're not a ruleless or lawless people. God's commandments are of infinite importance. Even in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 19, circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Even here, in, even in Colossians 3, 5, he, he talks about different rules, different, different principles and rules that we're to live by, all reflecting the character of God. All of these reflect the character of God. We, we as believers ought to behave in a certain way, but we do it to the glory of God, not, not trying to appease Him or get Him or twist His arm or just to stave off calamity. We do it because He's good. We do it because of the gospel. And you see it on your hand now. Rules can never take the place of Christ as the source of spiritual nourishment and growth. And any rules that we propose to follow must be clearly rooted in and lead us back to Christ. Even, even there, again, you see Christ is preeminent. Why do we do what we do or not do what we do? N not for ourselves, but to make Christ be seen as preeminent in the world around us. It's not for self. It's for God. Whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, 1 Corinthians 10.31, what? Do it to the glory of God. And our motivation has to be the glory of God. It's to paint an accurate picture of before a watching world of the, of the kingdom and the people and the character of God. I, I'm, a big, I'm a big sports guy, and, and uh, I, I enjoy sports, and I, I'm excited that uh, college football and, and somewhat professional football is, is, is coming back. I like college football more, but I, I want to give you a picture of, of this. And, and uh, on November, this, this is what a life under God mentality looks like. On November 28th in 2010, the Buffalo Bills were playing the Pittsburgh Steelers. Stevie Johnson was receiver for the Bills, and, and they were in overtime, and he had the opportunity to catch a touchdown in overtime to win the game, but he dropped the pass. The Bills lost the game. After the game, this is what Stevie Johnson tweeted, a professing believer. This is what he tweeted. I praise you 24-7, and this is how you do me? 
You expect me to learn from this? How? I will never forget this ever. Why did Stevie Johnson worship God? Was it to catch touchdowns? Or is it because of the gospel? Different motivation. Totally different motivation. I mean, many of you, many of you played sports. Did you make all the shoots, shots? Lee, did you make all your shots? Nope. I didn't make all my putts. I lost a lot of matches. Is that why I worship God? To make putts? Again, a life under God. Again, if I do this, I will avoid calamity. If I do this, God, you've got... No, that's just not the way it works. The reality is the gospel promises that that calamity cannot separate you from the love of God. That's the beauty of the gospel. That no calamity will ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's the beauty of the gospel. And, and there's a theology behind Johnson's tweet, and it reveals, again, that he's operating in a life-under-God posture. In exchange for Johnson's praise of God, he expected God to do what he wanted God to do all the time. Namely, help me catch the football. And when that didn't come, he blamed God for not... In, uh, no, Stevie Johnson, it could not be that Stevie Johnson just dropped the ball. God caused him to drop the ball. Couldn't be that you just maybe not as good as you thought you were. Everybody drops balls. And again, religion for Johnson at that time was a means of controlling uncontrollable events. In his case, football. For us, it may be differently. It may look differently in our lives. Are we simply trying to control God or are we worshiping God? Because we can't control God. There's a whole history that says otherwise. You're not going to control God. You're not going to overthrow Him. He alone is sovereign, but He is also, listen to me, good. Not only is He sovereign, but He is good. It's one thing to be sovereign, but if you're not good, that's a dangerous thing. And it's another thing, you see, my kids, they'll ask of me things, Sometimes they ask me things that I can do, I just don't want to do, for whatever reason. Then there are other things that they ask me that I want to do, that I don't have the power to do. And yet, here's the beauty of the, of the gospel. There is nothing that God can't do, and there's never a moment that He's not good. That's a good combination, especially for a father. And, and before a watching world, is that, is that what we're communicating clearly before a watching world? I mean, why are, why are we doing what we're doing? Is it to avoid calamity or is it to bring praise to God no matter what? What, what in our lives would cause us to cease to worship? I dare say that might be your God. That might be what you're truly worshiping. Whatever would cause you to not worship God is really that thing that you're worshiping the most. Is it touching? In this case, it was catching a football. In our case, it might be health. It might be circumstances. It might be money. Whatever it is, what, what is it 
that would keep you from worshiping God? Is it a circumstance? Again, that's a life under God posture. You may be worshiping just to avoid that circumstance. And the tragedy, again, is that for your own walk with the Lord and your growth, but not only that, the world around you, it is an inaccurate picture of the gospel. And it's an inaccurate picture of God. And again, as we said, look at D, in the life under God posture, the goal of our obedience is that God would keep us from calamity. Trials, troubles, struggles, listen to me. Every single one of us got them. The question is, how do we respond? When things don't go as planned, how do we respond? How are, not only that, how are you teaching your children to respond? What, what false theology might we be passing on to our kids? What, what's our response? And, and again, in, in John 9, Jesus, with the man born blind, Jesus pressed way beyond. He said, it is for this very moment that I might be glorified that this man was born blind. 15, 20, 25 years of blindness. I'm not, I don't know how old this man was. He was blind, building up to that one very moment that before the Pharisees, Jesus would give him his sight and God would be glorified. The question is this, would we be content with that? Would we be content and trust God to do whatever He wants with our lives as long as He was glorified in our lives? Or are we serving and worshiping for something else? But, but you know, that, that's kind of one side of the coin. We also see in, in, in Jesus' time with the Pharisees, you see the other side of the coin here. And in Matthew 19, verses 16 through 26, listen to what it says. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good things shall I do to obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good, but if you wish to enter the, into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, I have kept all these things, what am I lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to complete, to be complete, go and sell all your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Here's the opposite. It was presumed in that day, and listen, we, we buy into this today too. If someone was rich, what'd that mean? God blessed them. God loved that man, that woman. He blessed them. If someone was not rich, mm-mm, what are you doing? What's the problem? Wealth was a sign of God's blessing. Again, theology on display. Theology on display. Jesus seems to say the opposite. 
And, and at every opportunity in his ministry, Jesus was destroying this life under God posture. Disobedience, listen, disobedience did not automatically mean calamity would fall upon you, and every calamity was not linked directly to disobedience. And the opposite was true. Obedience didn't mean that you were going to have success either, or the avoidance of hardship. And, and our ways, listen, our ways are not God's ways. We have to surrender and submit to a sovereign and good God. That's why we, we, we learn of this word and his character. And again, the scriptures, we see that God is faithful. He's faithful. He can be trusted over and over and over again. He can be trusted. And, and it's not through just, again, it's not through just laying heavy rules and, and keeping from behavior. That's what Jesus dealt with in Matthew 23. With that, He said, you leaders lay all these heavy burdens upon the people. And, and you just think, well, if we just put a bunch of rules on them and, and over-govern their behavior. And again, again, God was appeased. Their theology was God was appeased through behavior. So you need to get that behavior no matter what. The reality is the heart was wrong. That's why Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take, me your yoke. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is gentle and light. Again, the work has been done. God, God has been appeased, if you will. God's wrath has been satisfied better through the work of Jesus Christ, Period. Jesus himself said, it is finished. Sin, the, the debt paid for. Again, we'll see that in Colossians. The debt, the debt has been paid. It's finished. We're not buying, we're not earning God's favor through our obedience. The goal of our obedience isn't just to keep people in line. It's not just to make our life easier. And in this posture, again, the Christian life, faith, is reduced to moralism. Moralism. No love, no joy, no display of the greatness of God. Look, if we do right, nothing bad will happen. And that becomes the why, simply to avoid calamity, just to get God to do what we want to do. Not the praise of an awesome God. Not the praise that says, look, I'll serve you no matter what, God. No, it's I'll serve you as long as you do what I need you to do. And God ceases to be the prize. And Christianity is, cannot be reduced to moralism and be maintained as Christianity. There's huge effects here. And, and the gospel that God offers through Christ doesn't result in a people who perform rituals or live under the constant threat of God's anger for their more failures. Listen, God hates sin. Don't, don't hear me say that. Otherwise, He hates sin. He is merciful and He is just. Does He punish sin? Absolutely. Look at the cross. Look at His own Son. He crucified His Son so that you and I, the sinners, could be rightly forgiven. Does God hate sin? Absolutely, even to the death of His Son. But listen, the only way our sin is forgiven is through believing in Jesus Christ. And again, we miss the relationship. We miss the relationship. Jesus didn't die 
Again, for only those who could maintain or reach a certain level of religiosity to have access to God. He died that whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord, repent of their sin, turn away from their sin, and look to Christ. And again, pictures of this all throughout the Old Testament. The the Exodus, the Passover, the the parting of the Red Sea, even in the desert when Moses held up the, the, the staff and he said, look, look to the staff, look, look at this, just look at this if the serpent bites you. Look to it. Again, it required faith. He said, you'll be healed. Not not be better on your own. Look to the cross. Whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord could be saved. And you see it on your handout. The gospel is a welcome back to God, not a way to earn or work your way in. It's a welcome back. We saw that in Luke 15, a picture of that even with the prodigal. All through Luke 15, you have, the, you have the parable of a lost sheep. Then you have the parable of a lost coin. Then you have a parable of a lost son. Then you have a parable of lost coins. The gospel at its heart is about reconciliation. It's about reconciling lost sinners to a holy God, who, by the way, created them. That's the gospel. God is restoring. He's reconciling. Not... not, not not that we were ever not sinners. Again, God is restoring His creation back to a right relationship with Him. He's restoring it to... He, the desire is a life with God, not a life under God. Do not, we do not worship simply to avoid calamity. We do not worship just to buy God's favor. But, but not only a life under God, I want, I want to take a few minutes here, life, un, life over God. Life over God. As we said, kind of the life from God was over here, and the tendency is to swing over here to a life maybe from God. If life under God was over there, sometimes we overreact and we go over here to a life over God. And, and a life over God, you see it on your handout. The life over God posture has very little room for God in the practical everyday affairs of life. Very little room. Does not does not give a whole lot of consideration and thought every day to God in everything in every day. And we live in a culture and a time where we see that even more. Ever since, really, you can trace it back to the Enlightenment period and. The enlightening period ushered in just a totally different way to view the world around us. And rather than seeing the hand of a good, sovereign, loving God, we, we really put principles and laws and, and things that could be a little bit more predictable at the center of everything. Natural laws and, and reason and, 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 and all these principles. People no longer needed God to live because the universe was kind of like a machine. And our job was just simply, we need to understand how the machine works and apply those principles, and then, hey, everything will go fine. And what happens is, it's a posture of an individual who really doesn't need God on an everyday level because science and rationale and all these other principles take care of you. And in the rare event that science and technology can't explain it, we'll turn to God for an explanation. And you see it on your handout. The life over God posture amounts to deism, not Christianity. 
And, and worse than that, it really boils down to what I would say is practical atheism. And, and deism is a, it's a theological position that rejects revelation and it rejects authority as, as a way that we can understand and know God and instead replaces that with just observe the national, natural world and, and that's how we determine that God wouldn't reveal himself in Jesus. He's only revealed himself in nature. That's all we can know about him. They, the deists would say there is a God, but that God is unknown. And if you want to get to know him, you just have to look at the natural world. And, and deism really views God in a way that he does not interfere with the daily world. Listen, he kind of just like this watch. Now, this watch is a bad example, as I said last week. It has a tendency to stop on its own, and I have to start it back up. Is it 1027? Is that close? Close, okay. But listen, the deists would view the world like this, that, that God is kind of like a watchmaker. He just wound the world up, and then let it go, and you're on your own. He wound it up, got it working, and you're on your own. And again, not, not willing to deny God altogether, you just begin to see God as distant and relatively uninvolved in the matters of everyday life. You really can't get to know Him. He's not relational. Again, God set up the world, put everything in motion, and just stepped back. Is that how we relate to God? Be careful how you answer that because it's very easy for us to live a life that, 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 that doesn't bring God into everyday happenings every day. We begin to just naturally rely on our, on our wisdom and, and on, on the things of this world to get through the day with little respect and little thought to God. And you see that on your handout. The practical implications of the life over God posture is that God has no real bearing on our daily experience. He's not actively involved in our everyday lives. And you know what? Instead, we're going to trust principles and we're going to trust science and laws that are predictable. Just select the right principle and everything will go well. And it would be like us saying, okay, God, I'll take your salvation, but you don't need to be involved in my everyday life. Or, or that God could not be truly known, even though John 1, 1, John 1, 14, John 1, 18 says that, even Hebrews 1, 3 says that Jesus is the exact representation of God. That God can be known. And he wants to be known, and, and to the point that he revealed himself. And, and Paul dealt with this in, in Acts 17. I mean, the fact that we can know God. Acts 17, verse 22, So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, that what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. You know what Paul is saying? The God that you don't seem to know, you want me to tell you about him? A relationship. He's not a watchmaker who wound the world up, and then it's up to us to figure out what principles work best. The five laws of this, or the 21 irrefutable, those are fine, but they don't supersede the Bible. Those are fine, God's not obligated to behave that way. He's not obligated by those. And, and the God that they couldn't know, Paul says, no, I, I'll introduce you to him. It's Jesus Christ. And again, Christ was preeminent. 
And the only proper response to this, Paul goes on to say, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The, the beauty of Christianity is that we can have a relationship with God. We can know God. Again, John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that you may know the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you sent. In Paul, we saw it in Philippians 3, that I've, I, I've considered, lost the, considered gain of losing of all things compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. That word is experiential knowledge. It's intimate knowledge. It's not a factual knowledge. It's an intimate, it's an intimate knowledge. Literally, it's the same thing that would, be, that would be used between a husband and a wife, an intimacy. Not just a factual knowledge. There's an intimacy. Again, in Colossians 2.8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. What he's saying is, no, you can know Christ. There's a relationship. There's intimacy. And again, science and, and best practices and all these worldly wisdom get, listen, they can't be superior to Christ. We can't build our life on that more than we are the trustworthiness of Christ. None of these things of the world can, can inform us with regards to life more than this word. I mean, this word is not just, again, not just good for salvation, it's good for life. 2 Peter 1.3, seeing that His divine power has given you everything you need for life and godliness. 2 Timothy 3.16, for all scriptures God breathes and is used for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness. So the man of God to be thoroughly equipped for every, every, every good work. It's not just, well, I, I need this for salvation, but then I need something. no. This word informs me on all of life. All of life. And these things, again, they appear to be wise, as Paul says, but they, they, they have no value in the end. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3, in response, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, He is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. He's saying, set your mind on the things above. And, and these, these, these can be, this life over God, it can be obvious, such as deism or atheism, but it can also be subtle. And, and again, I, I don't want to step on, I, I don't want to step on toes here. I, I, I'm not a confrontational guy. I like, uh, I'm a people pleaser at heart. I don't like getting emails and all those things. I don't, but... It, it is the way it is. But, but how we approach the Word of God, listen to me, even I, I hear it. And, and again, I get people's heart, but I'm just cautioning us, cautioning. Because there can be a theology behind these things, just like there was a theology behind Stevie Johnson's tweet. And I hear people talk about the Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth. Listen to me. The Bible is so much more than basic instructions before leaving earth. It's not, it's not an operator manual. It's a person. It reveals a person. 
And again, I, I'm, I, I get it. I get it. I'm, I'm, I, I get it that when people say that. But what I'm saying is, is we had to be real, real careful. Because it's so much more, it's so much more than, than just an operator manual before leaving earth. And, and again, it's not just something we go to. Like, it, don't treat the Word of God like I treat the owner's manual of my car. I only open that thing up when something shows up on the dashboard that I don't know what it means. So I go, well, what does that red light that says do not drive another moment mean? You know, I don't know. Look that thing up. What does it mean when, like, on my dashboard about every two months, it says low tire pressure? I'm like, whatever. It's in yellow. It can't be that important. It's in yellow. If it was in, re if it was in red, if they really meant don't drive this vehicle, it'd be in red. No, but, but is, that, is that the way we treat the Bible? We set it aside unless we have a question? Or, or is it a relationship? I mean... Wives, you wouldn't be okay if your husband treated you that way. I know where to find you when I need you. Husbands, you wouldn't be okay if your wife treated you that way. If I need something moved, I'll come find you. But, but I'm not, until I need you, you stay over there. That's a life over God mentality. Everything we need for life and godliness, right here. Right here. The Bible is sufficient to inform us on every area of life for godliness sake, to reveal the character of the author, namely God himself. And you see it on your handout, at the heart of Christianity is a relationship with God that is ushered in through the gospel. It's a relationship. I mean, what if your kids only came to you when they needed something? Never heard or saw a farm. And every, we may have people like that in your life, where you know when the phone rings, the only reason why that person's calling you is because they need something. I mean, is that the way we treat God? Is that, the way we, is that the way we picture Christianity before a watching world? Is this Bible just a depository of principles? Or is it the revelation of a person, of, of his character and his nature and his wisdom of God himself? And my fear is that's, that's why so many of us struggle to read and study, because we do not see the person behind these letters. This is revealing a person. This is revealing the one true God of the universe. It's not a dictionary. It's not an owner manual. It's not a Bible answer trivia. It's a person. This is a person. And when we treat the word again that way, we're saying that I'm preeminent. You're not preeminent, Christ. I'm preeminent. When I need you, I know where to find you. But until then, I'm going to leave. just leave me alone. That's a life over God mentality. And, and you see, B, in a life over God posture, the relationship with God is neglected in exchange for practical principles. And again, we cannot diminish, you see it on your handout, the Bible to simply divine revelation of principles versus a divine revelation of God by God. This is self-revelation. When you come to the Bible, is it for information or is it for transformation? Is it for growing in information or is it intimacy and relationship? Do, do you see simply words, or is this the character of the God who revealed these words? And again, the Pharisees were experts at knowing the word. They memorized it, they studied it like nobody else, and guess what? They missed the person behind the revelation. 
And, and you see that clearly in, in John chapter 5, verse 39. Jesus said, you search the scriptures. Again, he's talking to the Pharisees. He's, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. They were looking for rules to bring what only a person could bring. Then they missed the relationship. And even in our lives, we can begin to use God to get a better marriage, to be better managers of money, to be better leaders, to be better businessmen, to be better this, to be better that, and miss the relationship with God. That's the challenge. I mean, again, look at, you, look at ourselves. What are the circumstances that you tend to come to this word? Is it in tragedy or is it in question or is it every day in relationship? That'll tell us, again, I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to pick a fight here, but that'll tell you your theology behind the word. When do you come to this word? When do you come to it? That's your theology behind this word. Is it a person or is it a relationship? And the danger is, again, we, we put all these worldly principles and we feel like, hey, they're what I need. I only need the Bible for this, but I need this for this. And Hebrews eleven six 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For those who, for those who must, they must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. And, and you see it, the life over God posture, what is missed is communion. The Bible ceases to be a way to, to know God and foster communion. It just becomes what I need. It's just, it's about me. And, and again, I, I, lo- I was studying this week uh, Job with, with, some, with some men. And, and I love what Job says. Again, going back to Job, for all through that, they're, they're accusing, they're accusing, they're accusing. Job even kind of says, God, you better give me an answer. And listen, Job, God gives him an answer. In verses 38 and 40 through 41. And I would challenge you to read those. I mean, he basically says, Job, where were you when I formed the world? Like, where were you when I caused that mountain goat to give birth? Were you, did, were you aware of that? He literally says that. Where were you when I flung the stars in the sky? And Job, you realize that I, I keep this whole world under watch. I'm sovereign over the whole world Every single person. You're worried about one little person. I'm worried. I'm thinking about it all. And this is what Job says in response to seeing a... God says to Job, I'll start in verse 1 of chapter 40. Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said this. And listen to what Job said. Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? And listen to what he says. I lay... My hand on my mouth. I mean, I, I think that's. I mean, when we have a proper understanding of who God is, it reminds me of Psalm 8, where he says, What is man that you're mindful of him? Who is man that you take notice of him? Billions of people on the earth, and God is sovereignly looking after Chris Basham. That's crazy. And he's offered the creator 
Like it says in Colossians, I mean, He's rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Galatians, we've been brought into a family. We're His children. The, the, the behind all of this is a relationship. And you see it on your handout. We think what we want is control when really what we need is a deeper relationship with God. Trust God. Not these formulas and all these other things. Trust God. God alone is sovereign. He alone is unchanging. And listen, we've said it before. It's there on your handout. We cannot judge God and His faithfulness on our activities nor based on effectiveness and results. I don't measure God based on effectiveness. You don't measure God based on effectiveness. I don't try to interpret God based on my circumstances. I don't interpret God based on whether things worked out or whether they didn't work out. And I'll give you an example. In Numbers 20, God had told Moses before, strike the rock. I mean, uh, speak to the rock. Strike the rock. I'm sorry, strike the rock. He said, strike the rock. Moses had done that. Got water. Got what he needed. Good. In this one instance, God tells Moses, speak to the rock. This time, speak to the rock. What did Moses do? He struck the rock. Did, did they get water? Yes, he did. Was God pleased? Was Moses effective? He got what the people needed. He got results. God wasn't honored. Matter of fact, Moses didn't enter the promised land because he struck a rock and didn't speak to a rock. And rather than obeying and speaking to the rock again, he, spuck the rock. he struck the rock just what he had done all the other times before. Water flowed out, got the desire. You, you look at 1 Corinthians 4, it says it is required of a steward to be found faithful. Here's what God cares about faithfulness. Faithfulness. It's not about getting results. It's about being faithful. God, faithfulness, not effectiveness, is God's measuring rod. And the Christian life, again, it's based on, you see it there, it's based on faith and not formulas. My challenge today is do not exchange a relationship with God for anything less. Don't, not an under-God posture or an over-God posture. A relationship. God has offered a relationship. And the, the, the purpose of our lives, it hasn't changed. You can go all the way back to Genesis 1, 26 and 7, and you can go all the way forward. It's that we would be His representatives, that we would reflect Him before a watching world. And these postures, as we see, we'll see in Colossians, they... They are insufficient and they fall short because Christ ceases to be preeminent. You and I become preeminent. Control becomes preeminent. We approach the relationship to get something other than God. That is devastating not only for our walk, but that's devastating for a watching world because it's an inaccurate picture. And Christ ceases to be preeminent. He ceases to be seen as enough. And Christ is enough. 